big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to thank our newest patrons, Dominique and Emma. Welcome to the team. If you want to be like them and get access to bonus content like our notes and outtakes, head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. And just a heads up, in our next episode, we're going to be talking about the Lizzie Bennet Diaries with a very special guest. So if you've never seen it or you just want a refresher, now would be the time to watch it. Just go to YouTube and search Lizzie Bennet Diaries. And now enjoy this week's episode covering Fire Island with our guests, Jen, Sarah, and Rachel from Cruising Podcast. One thing I'm going to do really quickly before we start up is just apologize to Graham. So fun fact about this microphone, it's not our usual microphone. Um, I meant to travel with our travel mic. I'm in Massachusetts right now, but I accidentally packed my boyfriend's mic, which is not as good. No shade to Mike, Mike's mic. No shade to Mike's mic. No, no shade to Mike. Shade to Mike's mic. Yes. Her boyfriend's name is Mike. This is getting confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. My boyfriend's name is Mike, but it's just uh, going to be a little bit less high quality sound from me than usual. <laughs> so anyway. This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about the much-requested Fire Island, which recently came out, uh, written by and starring Joel Kim Booster and directed by Andrew Ahn. And we are joined today with the most guests that we've ever had on the show at once. We're joined with Rachel, Jen, and Sarah of Cruising Podcast. Welcome. Hi. Hey. Thanks for having us. Well, we're so glad to have you guys here on the podcast. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast and what you guys do in the internet podcasting space? Sure. Sarah, do you want to take this one? Sure, I'll take it. So Cruising is a narrative style documentary podcast series about the last 20 or so lesbian bars in the country. So the three of us, me, Rachel, and Jen, Almost a year ago now, road tripped to each of the last lesbian bars. And then each episode is like a mini documentary about one of our stops on the trip. It's truly so cool. I can't recommend the podcast enough. I feel our listeners are heavily queer. So I think that all of you will really enjoy that podcast. And we thought it would be perfect to have them on for Fire Island because it is just gay Pride and Prejudice. Yes, this is a Pride and Prejudice that takes place within the queer community on summer vacation in Fire Island, which is a beautiful little island off the coast of Long Island, a different island. Uh, and it is just an incredibly fun time. <laughs> it is really, really good. Before we get started talking on that, we're going to ask our guests a couple of questions that we ask all of our guests, uh, starting with what is your relationship to Jane Austen? 
I think uh, this is Jen. I think I'd like to go first because I think I have the smallest and um, least influential relationship, which is that I know Jane Austen and I know Jane Austen, you know, wrote Pride and Prejudice. That's pretty much the extent of what I know. Okay, I'm going to challenge you to that, Jen, to see who really has the least connection to her. (laughs) I've seen Pride and Prejudice. And that is where that's where it ends for me. I've seen Fire Island. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully, Rachel, you can bring it home for us. I'm I'm definitely I'm by no means an expert <laughs> on Jane Austen um, or Pride and Prejudice. I have read Pride and Prejudice in I think high school was probably the last time I read Pride and Prejudice. And I have also seen probably a couple of Pride and Prejudice film versions uh, along with Fire Island. Which is, I would say, one of the more accurate modern adaptations of Pride and Prejudice. So you guys have basically read the book at this point, right, Molly? Yeah, I mean, it was fairly book accurate. We're going to talk about some differences later on. But for the most part, they hit all the main points. All the characters are spot on representations of who these people would be if they were gay men. So our next question is... If you have a relationship to Jane Austen, what's your favorite Austen content? And you can say literally anything for this answer. (laughs) And if you don't have an answer based on a lack of relationship to Jane Austen, that's fine. Well, I, I mean, I can answer this. I think, honestly, after seeing Fire Island, Fire Island is now my favorite Jane Austen content, if we're counting that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but previously, as somewhat of a theater nerd, my favorite Austin adaptation, Bedlam Theater's adaptation of Sense and Sensibility. Incredible choice. Really, really good pick. Kate Hamill, if you want to come on this podcast. I've reached out. <laughs> oh, she, she should do it. She's got to do it. She Honestly, she should. Which Austin character, to the best of your knowledge, is canonically the queerest? And again, caveated that this is a loose relationship to Jane Austen in general. I can answer this first uh, because I think I have the most experience with Jane Austen from anybody on this podcast. For sure. Yeah, that's the And point. for our hardcore Austen lovers out there, I will caveat that my answer is very clearly defined within the uh, confines of Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice because obviously we're not spoiling Molly on anything. Uh, but I would say Charlotte Lucas. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> that girl don't have a lot of love for men. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, um, a travesty that she wasn't put adapted into this Fire Island story. Um, I would also say Charlotte Lucas is the most canonically queer. I want to say Mary Bennett, but it she is a she, well. Actually, I wouldn't say in the book she thirsts after Collins. I think that's something that the movie adaptations add in. So I would honestly either go with Charlotte Lucas or Mary Bennett. Shout out to one of our Instagram followers, Pat who will consistently respond to this question saying Charlotte Lucas is ace. And I agree with that. And I think that Mary Bennett is gay. And that's my my answer of that. Yes, I think it's very fair to read Charlotte Lucas in the ace category as well. And I do think that Mary, I want to I want to coin this for a future reference. Uh, Mary's thirst for Collins is Margaret Dashwood syndrome. Yeah. Which is to say that Gave her a personality in the movie. Yeah, well, one adaptation did something that all the adaptations later did as well, which is give, in the case of Sense and Sensibility, Margaret Dashwood a personality. But in this case, 
give Mary Bennett a thirst for Mr. Collins, which, you know, is is what it is. So I started thinking about this during Pride Month because that's when this movie was released. And so I wanted us in celebration of Pride, even though it is now July, ask you all, what is your favorite piece of queer fictional content? And it doesn't have to be like all time favorite. Like I would say that my most recent favorite would be Heartstopper probably, which if you haven't watched that, it's on Hulu and it is so freaking cute and heartwarming. I think my current favorite is Hacks, mm. the TV show. That is a phenomenal pick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jen, if that was I know. your answer. <laughs> I'm like, shoot, now what do I say? I think a close second would be Dickinson. I thought it was going to be really kitschy. It was just really well done, and it, it had some nice, some nice queer tension strewn throughout the series. Okay, I'm going to go... <sighs> I feel like there's a better answer for this. This is so like basic, but I'm going to say euphoria and then also maybe keep thinking about it. If I have a really good answer, I'll interject it at some point. (laughs) I think that we can all interject as needed. I'll interject. I just finished a book literally right before we sat down to record this called The Charm Offensive, and it was about what would happen on The Bachelor. I mean, not The Bachelor. It was a fake show called uh, Ever After. Um, If the prince fell in love with his male producer and and just like what that storyline would be. And it was so heartwarming and I cried. So I'm just recovering from that right now. I'm going to I'm going to put out a TJ Klune reference that Molly recommended this book to me and it stuck with me because it was so sweet. The House in the Cerulean Sea. It's a very sweet little found family uh, love story with uh, a lot of magical children and satanic uh, worship. <laughs> well, not satanic worship, but satanic acceptance. <laughs> yes, Satan is a character who is a sweet little boy. Anyway, should we talk about Fire Island? Yes. Before we do that, I'm just going to put this out there. We did this last time we started covering non-Jane Austen per- like exact content. Spoiler warning. For anyone who hasn't seen Fire Island yet, if you're listening to this podcast, I assume you have seen it. And even if you haven't seen it, it's basically just Pride and Prejudice. So just putting it out there for those of you who were hoping to watch it and make decisions about how things were adapted for yourself first. Yeah, I'm about to give a very detailed overview of the movie, which tells you everything that happens in it. So if you want to watch it first, go pause now, go watch, come back. So before I jump into this, anyone feel free to interrupt me at any time. I got a little bit overzealous with how many notes I took and I tried to keep it brief, but it's not that brief. So here I go into a brief-ish synopsis of Fire Island. We start with our Bennett sisters, Noah, Howie, Luke, Keegan, and Max, who are Lizzie, Jane, Lydia, Kitty, and Mary, respectively, on their way to Fire Island for a week. When we get to the island, we meet Aaron, who represents Mrs. Bennett and is played by the amazing Margaret Cho, who won a lot of money in a lawsuit against a chain restaurant and lets all of the sisters stay at her house for free every summer. Noah decides he's going to help hopeless romantic Howie get laid this week before Aaron reveals that she's broke and has to sell the house, making this their last summer together. At the dance later that day, Howie meets Charlie, who obviously represents Bingley, and is instantly smitten. Meanwhile, Noah is not smitten with Charlie's friends, Will, who represents Darcy, and Cooper, who's kind of a Caroline-Catherine de Bourgh hybrid. At a party at Charlie's that night, 
Noah goes to the bathroom and overhears Will telling Charlie that Noah isn't hot enough to be that annoying and that Fire Island is a playground for superficial, vapid morons. The next morning, Noah finds Howie never came home, so he goes back to Charlie's house to find him and ends up accidentally inviting the whole house over for a dinner party. Aaron freaks out and sends them shopping, but since they're broke, Noah's denting cans in the back of the grocery store when this very hot man, Dex, who represents Wickham. I want to take a pause here because yes. I want to I want to give a shout out to Joel Kim Booster here for accuracy to the text of Pride and Prejudice, which states that Wickham is obscenely hot. He walked on stage and I was like on screen and I was like, oh, my God, hot Wickham, like really, really hot Wickham. Finally, because he's like canonically never hot in the movies. And he needs to be. In the books, they make a big deal about how hot this man is. And in every adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, the guy who plays Darcy is hotter than the guy who plays Wickham because they always cast, like, a heartthrob to play the leading man in the rom-com. But here, the actor who plays Will, who I know from How How to Get Away from Murder. How to Get Away with Murder? How to Get Away with Murder. How to Get Away from Murder. Goodbye. (laughs) Run. How to Get Away with Murder. He is very hot. But this is the first time... I've seen a Wickham on screen where I've been like, yes, that is an absurdly hot man. Like, that is ridiculous how hot he is. Dex is definitely hotter than Will, for sure. Yes, I had to I had to give props because to me, we'll get into this, but it, to me, it's clear that Joel Kim Booster knows Pride and Prejudice super well and caught a lot of the nuances of the story and put them in the movie. And I appreciated that, like, little nuance right there. Yeah. Actually, in the moment right before this, one of those nuances came out to me, which was Aaron being like, I can't believe you invited all these people over for dinner. We're broke. What are are we going to do? And they were like, well, you love throwing dinner parties. It makes it really stressful to be friends with you, but we can cancel if you want. And she goes, I would rather die. And is so (laughs) Mrs. Bennett. (laughs) Iconic. So anyway, when uh, Noah is denting the cans and Dex comes back, he's like, it's okay. I'm poor too. I get it. Then Dex latches on to their posse, and as they're walking home, they run into Charlie and Will. There's some obvious tension between Will and Dex, so Noah obviously invites Dex to dinner, because why not? At dinner, Will and Noah talk about books and have a battle of wits, which makes Noah, quote, both mad and horny, which is also just the nuance of Pride and Prejudice in a snapshot. It's the maddest, horniest of the books. Mm Mm-hmm. Later in the kitchen, Dex tells Noah that Will hates him because he has an OnlyFans, and then he and Noah kiss. The next day on the beach, I wanted to note that Luke has Dex in sunscreen across his stomach, which is some nice foreshadowing. Big, nice shout out to Matt Rogers from Las Culturistas, who plays Luke slash Lydia in this. He does such a good job. Yeah. The girls interrogate Howie at the beach about what happened with Charlie after dinner, and it turns out all they did was do a puzzle and kiss. That night, at the underwear party, shit hits the fan, which is where I really started. I was like, I can't, my notes are going to be too long if I don't pare this down. So I, I tried my best. But Noah and Will have some sexual tension before they're broken up by Cooper, who tells Noah that Charlie only brought Will here to hook up with him and that Noah should back off. So then Noah goes to hook up with Dex, but accidentally gives Dex a nosebleed when he sees Will watching them. Will then tells Noah that Dex is not a good guy, but just as he's telling him this, they see Charlie across the room dancing with his ex, Reese. Cooper then reveals that they flew Reese out that morning. Howie declares that he doesn't need Charlie, and everyone decides to go to an after party, but they leave Noah behind. So Will walks Noah halfway to the after party, but they get in a fight in the rain, and it's very dramatic. 
when Noah finds Howie, they also get in a fight because Noah doesn't actually know what's best for Howie. The next day, Howie and Luke are both missing, and Noah gets a letter from Will explaining that Dex did something bad to a friend of his. Charlie comes to talk to Howie and tells him that Reese has Lyme disease, and that's why he's back with him. We'll talk about how I feel about that plot line. We'll get to this, but what the fuck was that plot line? Yeah, th- that whole plot line was... It was lazy. That's what I think, too. We'll get to it, but this was the only place in the script where I was like, there was a much simpler way to deal with this whole adaptation piece, but... Yeah, agree. So... Noah says something that Howie doesn't like, and so he, like, storms off, goes for a walk, and he runs into Will. They talk about everything and sort of become friends when Will does a dance battle, and it's very endearing. The next day, they go to the beach and read together. Then later at at (laughs) Kawioke. The dangers of a very long synopsis. Later at karaoke, Howie sings a beautiful love song in front of Charlie, but as soon as it's over, Aaron screams because she's been sent a sex tape of Luke and Dex. And Luke was on drugs and doesn't remember the tape being filmed, so Noah is like, no way I'm going to kill him, and he goes to find Dex. He runs into Will, shows him the video, and Will also says he's going to kill him, and they go off together. Noah pushes Dex into the pool, and Will uses legal jargon to scare him into deleting the video. Charlie then introduces Reese to Noah and Howie, and Reese is racist and awful, and we hate him. Then Howie decides to leave the next day, and he and Noah have a heart-to-heart about the, the Asian hate they face within the queer community and the different ways that they deal with it. Howie is already floating away on the boat by the time Charlie and Will get to the dock, and Noah tells Charlie that he has to do something big and stupid to fix this. So, of course, they steal a water taxi and follow Howie to the mainland. Charlie makes a beautiful apology, they kiss, and Howie comes back to the island. Later, Noah and Will talk about what they want in life and decide to live in the moment and not worry about the future, and then they kiss too, and everyone dances in the sunset. The end. That was so impressive. Everyone give Molly a hand. Good job, Molly. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. I, I love the the Kewi Oki beautiful love song, which is just a really slow version of a Britney Spears song <laughs> that comes back to us on, in a different version again later in the movie. The soundtrack of this is very on point all around. Great opening song as well. Everything about the music was on point. Yes, yes, I would agree. And also, I did not know Bo and Yang could sing until this movie. Yeah, it was sweet. All right, so should we dive into chatting about this? I guess one way to start would be to just open up and get people's first impressions of the, the movie in general. I mean, my expectations were, what what is this going? This could be, you know, so many different things, and so it could be some terrible things. Um, and probably like 15, 20 minutes in, I found myself just really, in, I think that it was written really well. It was it was quick. It wasn't too kitschy. I think the humor was on point. Like I, I, I felt connected to it, even though it was a movie about gay men. Yeah, I enjoyed it so much more than I was expecting. I think similarly, didn't have super high expectations of it. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm really the target audience for this movie about gay guys on Fire Island, but I had a blast. Like it was genuinely very entertaining and fun to watch and I thought it was smart and great performances all around um and yeah I liked it a lot okay I think this is going to be an interesting conversation because I really didn't like it well there were a couple things that I liked about it which I'll I'm excited to talk about but yeah in general I just like I, I felt like it was like really 
like some of the humor was like so stereotypical and like kind of like predictable and I just feel like a lot of yeah a lot of the like characters and humor were predictable and I don't know I have like a a lot of I have a list of complaints about it but I I don't have to like get into it right this second but I will say don't be shy about them like when we talk about our least favorite parts like spew them out okay yeah I just feel like in general it's like kind of this it's a similar thing to like love Simon which is like is there value in this representation even if it's like not necessarily like groundbreaking content like is it just groundbreaking on its own and like good on its own because it's like something new that like we haven't like the queer community hasn't been able to have in media but like in general if it was the exact same thing and it was like not all gay people I would like like I don't think we would like see as much value in it at all because it's like not like a good it's like a you know okay I'll 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 get more specific later (laughs) Very valid. And for the record, we always love when people have disagreements on our podcast when it comes to different content. We've had several different people on different episodes who either really, really, really love and are very invested in the things we're covering or like really like viscerally hate them. So we've run the gambit on this. Um, My personal experience was like really enjoying this one. Again, uh, Molly and I come at it from having obsessively in detail reading Pride and Prejudice. And I really appreciated, um, I really appreciated this as an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. I had a really good time watching it. I had a lot of fun. And I think for me, and we'll get into this, something that I was really impressed by, which I haven't seen done in many adaptations of Jane Austen's work, was the effort to bring Jane Austen's class commentary to the work, which is usually thrown to the wayside in Jane Austen adaptations in favor of the romance. And I think that seeing Joel Kim Booster try to take the biting satire of England's upper classes and apply it to the politics and uh, class dynamics of the queer community in Fire Island and his own personal experience of it was a really interesting watching experience for me. It seems like that's, you know, we read a blurb. I was like, I need to refresh like Pride and Prejudice Rachel, like help me out. And from what she read to me, it seemed more so about class than it did about romance. So I think I think it was represented really well in a, in a certain type of community in the flick. Um, but that was... I, I feel like that was a, a main vein to be communicated. So I'm surprised that other adaptations don't push that. I feel like it it kind of like strings everything together for me. Yeah. And I mean, it makes it make sense with the Darcy Lizzie romance. It is completely centered around money and him being rich and snobby and like the economics of dating in Jane Austen. Yeah. The economics. Of, I, well, I wrote that in my notes, the economics of dating in Jane Austen under similarities, because that's what they, they did it in a way that wasn't like, I feel like there's not people aren't like necessarily thinking about money as much when they're dating nowadays. But I think that they did a really good job of translating the economics of dating in Jane Austen into other kinds of capital Um, when they're on the boat coming over and everyone just starts taking their shirts off. And Lizzie explains that like 
there's money, but there's also, do you have abs? Are you white? Like how their class system works on Fire Island and in the gay community. The kind of class commentary and the um, whole economic side of all the relationships in the original Pride and Prejudice, like totally ups the stakes of the romance in, mm-hmm. in the novel. And like you said, like that doesn't happen, I don't think in most adaptations of Pride and Prejudice. And I feel like Fire Island did a really great job of translating that to a contemporary audience in a way that makes sense with this setup of like, oh, this might be their last summer on the island unless they, and, and it's not heavy handed, like this was kind of the unspoken, I feel like subtext of the film, like this is going to be their last summer unless they make some connections, um, unless they start mm-hmm. start dating, like, I don't know, there's just that dynamic of like class, like momentum. Yeah. That, that raises the stakes in in the novel, and it wasn't in your face. Like I think it 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 was it was dropped in subtle ways that it just kind of sat with you, like either subconsciously or in a different part of your brain while you were watching the movie. That that made it more, like you said, raise the stakes. I totally agree. That was one of the things that I wrote down that I did enjoy was that like using that social class as the social class like conflict. I thought was really interesting and and like really accurate. That is like, that's why you should make a movie about Fire Island is to like explore that, which I think is cool. I do feel like, and then maybe the question for all of my critiques is like, is it trying to be what I want it to be? Like, is it trying to be realistic? Is it trying to be realism in any way? Because I thought I have beef with like how mean the people were and how like, I just I it seemed some of it was unrealistic to me that they would walk up to a party and people would know that they were poor and annoying immediately. Right. That's like such a first of all, such a cliche of like that being how you enter a party like that doesn't everyone's in like bathing suits. Like, how do you know that these people are poor? I found that weird. But maybe that's not maybe that's not what they were going for. I There were moments where I felt like they were kind of trying to have this realistic portrayal of people but my take on what was going on and like again I have not read enough interviews of Joel Kim Booster's sort of writing of the piece to know for sure I think you are correct there were definitely moments where I thought it was clumsy in its adaptation of trying to really press Pride and Prejudice onto the dynamics of Fire Island Uh, but I do think it was sort of supposed to be a heightened satirical situation where everything was a little over the top um, with the through line. And I really found this to be an interesting part of the story of Howie and Noah, or for our listeners going by the books, the relationship being Jane and Lizzie, their bond and their pain in the community being sort of the more real grounding thing in the movie. Mm hmm. Which brings us to a difference between the movie and the book, which is that this movie really rests on that relationship between Jane and Lizzie or Noah and Howie, in this case played by Joel Kim Booster as the Lizzie character and Bowen Yang as the Jane character being sort of even more outside of the the community and being Asian American as well as being, you know, 
not very wealthy and uh, in the case of Bo and Yang's character or Jane's character, not feeling like he doesn't match the aesthetic that's expected in certain pieces of the gay community. So I think that the movie really like focused on their relationship above the romances in a lot of ways, which I thought was an interesting choice. Yeah, the um, Noah saying that he wasn't going to get laid until Howie got laid, like that centered their relationship immediately and made it less about like who they were getting laid with and more on the, oh, I'm going to help you in this way. And then Howie being like, I don't actually need help in that way in the end. But that was that was dumb, though. Like, it's like he was spending just as much time with these other men. And and he was just like it was like almost religious. Like he was like, I just can't have like he's like, I can't have sex yet for, for this until this like arbitrary thing happens. Like, right, and then he still does, though. Like, then he right. still goes into the he back He still room. does, and he still is, like... But it's just, like, you would think the point of that would be, like, okay, you have to focus on Howie, but you're still you're still just, like, going off and making out with them. And, what like, it's, like, it was so unnecessary. Like, I don't know. I think there's, there's still conflict within the film without having this, like, weird boundary for him. <laughs> why do you think they put that... Why do you think he put that in, then? Because, in theory you know, this is my best bud. I'm, I'm his wing person. That would be enough for me to be like, I wouldn't have to be like, I'm not getting laid until you get laid. (laughs) (laughs) Like it could just be like, you're my dude and I'm focusing on you. Like, let's get you hooked up. Like, I wonder why it wasn't just simpler. Yeah. I feel like it was honestly a writing mistake where they just put that line in because it's not something from the book and he doesn't fully adhere to it. And I feel like they lose it almost immediately. But then like later on, he's like, my blue balls are eternal. And it's like, then go have sex with someone. I mean, first of all, he did suck a dick in the middle of the movie. Yeah, he did. I think it messed up my timeline for me a little bit, too. Like I kind of because they because that was like a statement in my head, I was like, oh, how he's going to, you know, bone or get boned. And then it's like then it's going to be a lot of sex and like. You know, I didn't I thought it would be a little bit quicker on and like Howie hooking up so that Noah could hook up because it seemed like it was like a big deal for Noah to hook up. Um, So, yeah, it kind of like it it messed with my my movie timeline or my foreshadowing in my own head. I think if I'm being generous in terms of the writing of this screenplay, it might be an attempt to up the ante of Howie or Jane getting laid in the first instance, because, again, if you look at the uh, Pride and Prejudice novel, Jane Bennett getting married is a huge deal because she is the oldest daughter oh. in the family. And mm-hmm, she is mm-hmm. the one most likely to snag a rich guy and secure the future of her entire family. So there's a lot of stakes in Jane getting married, whereas it's kind of hard to just be like, oh, he's my shy friend who's not got a six pack. Right. It's crucial that he gets laid. <laughs> you know what would be would have been really interesting is if they part of the like relationship between Howie and Charlie was like was exactly that like trying to secure a way to to still come to Fire Island like somewhere to stay on Fire Island. Oh, like an ulterior motive, not just like true romance. Because that's so real. Like that's I know people that go there without cause, and they can't afford like to rent any place and they just go there and like meet people on Grindr or meet people and stay like couch surf or like stay with people that they're just like meeting and hooking up with. That's a part of the culture. That would be so interesting. And also like mirror 
the the book more and I feel like that is what Charlie's friends are trying to like quote unquote protect him from that that's like what they're suspicious of yeah they were like if that really is what they were talking about I like wish that they had said that that was weird to me like what are they what do you think they're trying to get from you like you literally think he's a gold digger like if so they should they should have just explained that because that's interesting like that they need a place to stay on fire island and that's maybe why they're talking to him or why they want the two of them to get together but they like didn't really make that clear I feel like what happens what do the Howie and Charlie storylines like what is the development of that storyline in go ahead Molly's pumped to explain this to me yeah well because this was the main thing that I think that they got wrong in this movie this is the biggest flaw in the movie it's it's glaring so in the book Bingley is smitten with Jane Jane is smitten with Bingley but she's shy like uh, how he is in this and doesn't fully show that she loves him. And Darcy, one, thinks that she's a gold digger. Um, Two, thinks that her family is just completely lax decorum and is embarrassing, and which they are. And they show that at the party with the cheese and the water and everything. And three, thinks that Jane doesn't love Bingley as much as Bingley loves Jane. This movie just completely gets that wrong. And and Darcy then, oh, and, and in the book, Darcy separates. Them. Oh, yeah, this is this is crucial is that, yeah, Darcy is instrumental in separating the Howie character and Charlie. Right. He tells Bingley that Jane doesn't love him and they and it moves him to London to be far away from her and and like separate them. Yeah. So the trajectory in the, the book is that. These two meet, they fall kind of in love, and then Darcy separates them because he thinks that it's not a favorable connection and that she's not in love enough with his friend to be worthy, basically. And Lizzie has the best time ripping Darcy a new asshole uh, about the whole endeavor. And basically, by the end of the book, Darcy has repented, and he actually brings... He grows. Yes, he grows. Growth. Growth. And he brings the two back together in the end and they end up married. Uh, but after they have to sort of reconcile the sort of abandonment moment that happened. And then Darcy basically apologizes and fixes it. And this, what made me angry is because I saw at the very beginning of the film, there was a way to adapt this cleanly. Because here it looked like the Cooper character, which is the Caroline character, Bingley's sister in the book, basically brings Bingley's ex there and has him hang out. Because of Lyme disease? Because of Lyme disease. But that was fake. But either way, like, he was still dancing with his ex as if he was still with his ex. So at the very beginning of the movie, Will says to Charles, what are you doing with this guy? He's cute and everything, but you just got out of a serious relationship. So I thought... Will was going to convince Charlie it's not a good idea to jump into something and he should be having random casual sex on the island. Yeah, I thought Will was going to be more of a a bad guy, so to speak. Right. That would have made sense. Because that's what happens in the book. Darcy, the whole book is about Darcy fucking up in the beginning, one, saying mean things about Lizzie and her family, two, separating this relationship, and then later on saying, I'm sorry I insulted you and your family, but you have to see it from my perspective. But like, again, I apologize and I, I love you. And two, 
I really did have my best friend's best interests at heart. I thought your friend wasn't in love with him and growing and then repenting and getting them back together. And in this, he never makes a mistake. I think they could have went like, like Rebecca, you were saying, they could have went there, but they completely departed from that after the the overheard conversation. I think they could have went down that road, but I think after that, it, it just kind of disappeared. Which would have frankly been, I feel like, a more interesting and maybe realistic plot line than the ex-boyfriend with Lyme disease. The ex-boyfriend with Lyme disease of it all. <laughs> this is, we just talked about Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and it's fresh in my mind because I just finished editing that episode. And our guest for that episode was talking about the best parts of the book and the movie being when it was closest to what Jane Austen wrote. And I think that she really knew what she was doing in terms of plot. And the ex-boyfriend with Lyme disease, just she just wouldn't have written that. But that being said, I do want to say, because we're on the topic of the, quote, Jane and Bingley, the, or the Howie and Charles, I just want to say I loved the guy they cast as Charlie. So sweet. I thought he was so cute, and he was so earnest, and... Your, your heart just saying every time his little blue eyes got all sad. So he had like a tough plot line to work with, but I thought all the work he did in like the interim of that part was really, really nice. Yes. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host, Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. I think while we're talking about differences from the plot line of Pride and Prejudice and, and things that we didn't think clicked, maybe we should just talk about our least favorite parts now while we're on the subject of, of talking about things we didn't like. And then I promise we will get to, for, for those who enjoy the movie a lot, we will get to talking about the things we liked a lot too. <laughs> Sarah, this is your cue. Okay, well, we were talking about Charlie and... 
I just feel like th- this goes a little bit with like what I, what I was saying about like not making it clear like what was such an issue with like the two groups being together like when Charlie's like Charlie's like I've never met anyone like you guys before I just thought that was crazy like just so many things like that were like so dramatic like a, a few times that was like driven home that point of like who are you a- alien people that I've like never encountered Right, like, you've never met someone that's not rich, ever. Like, I feel like they overdid the, like, class structure, which is already there and already really interesting and already, like, more dramatic than it should be. And then they just kind of, like, took it and made people too mean and made people, like, too... made. Yeah, I just, like, it didn't make sense to me. Um... I didn't like the narration. I thought that was like really, I just feel like we're past that in movies at this point. Also, please uh, interrupt me as well. If, if <laughs> it, I don't want this to just be my monologue. Um, I didn't like how much Noah loves Fire Island and the way he was like, they at dinner when they all started crying about losing the the house. I thought that was insane. Yeah, these these men just need to like rent an Airbnb somewhere a couple times a year. I, I know, feel like it's yeah. so easy. Like your New York City servers, like you can definitely afford. You're you're fine. Like right. you're, you're more poor than these other people, but you're fine. Well, also I will say about the class structure and the money like Will is a lawyer at a nonprofit. That was the one that stuck out to me as an attorney. I was like, "Wait a minute. There is no class divide here. Who who bought the mansion that Bingley or Charlie is living in? Is that his parents? Is he from money? Because if he's a doctor, he if he's a pediatrician, he's not making mansion on Fire Island money. That much <laughs> money. Right. Exactly. Right. And also Charlie or not Charlie Cooper, when he pulls Noah aside, he's like talking about Will and he's like, you know, he, he I think he comes from money. And it's like, do, do you not come from money? I mean, like, you're all. You're a brand manager. That's code for trust fund baby right you simply must be like if you're making your money on instagram you're not making that much money that also came out of the blue too like i i it was like cooper was just a dick period so like cooper could have just been a dick throughout the entire movie and i didn't need to know that will was flown in or brought to the the island for for to hook up with cooper like i didn't i didn't need that to know that cooper was just a dick and will be a dick for the whole movie well, that that is a nod to the move or to the book, um, because Caroline in the book Bingley's sister is uh, thirsty for Darcy. However, I will say I didn't think it was obvious in the book. I didn't realize it until like halfway through. I I firmly disagree with Molly. Right, it's okay. very very obvious right. from chapter three onwards that Caroline really wants to bone Darcy. Now it makes sense. Now that part of the now it now it all makes sense. I will say I did not think that. Will was actually flown in for Cooper's benefit in this. I thought that Cooper was being super self-involved and kind of a dick and had decided that Darcy was going to be his L.A. boyfriend. Ah, yes. But that I thought Charlie had flown Will in because he didn't like the people who were staying in his mansion and he actually wanted a real friend there. Oh, yeah, that's what Um, he said, right? Yeah, Yeah, I think he did say that. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, and I do have to emphasize this, there is actually no class divide, as far as I could tell, because Will was a lawyer at a nonprofit and Noah was a nurse um, at a clinic. And neither one of those jobs makes a crazy amount of money. 
but they're at the same class level, pretty much. Right, and Noah is just as hot, if not hotter, than Will, so he has that on him, Mm -hmm. too. I think we just have to assume that uh, there's generational wealth involved. Yeah. That's, like, the only way the the movie works is if, like, even though Will and Noah are probably making the same annual salary, Will comes from wealth and Noah doesn't it's like the only way to justify it even though they didn't explain that I agree with you that we we if you like want to be able to take the movie seriously you have to assume that but I just I think that if they intended it that way then they they would have said something um I'm glad that they mention they refer to L like to Will going all L Woods on on what's his name Dex because that scene was like so obviously L like it's like the exact scene from from Legally Blonde and it was like so it was just like so dramatic and if they hadn't said that like I was about to be so mad like (laughs) that they had that as a plot like you can't just like steal that plot point that you like go in lawyer whatever but I'm glad that they that like kind of I forgave them for that a little bit because they like referred to it as him L Woodsing. And then oh, I actually have a question. So, how many of you guys and also if you know anything about your listener, like do you have you guys been to Fire Island or and do you think that your listeners have been to Fire Island? Um, I did a poll on our Instagram yesterday about how many of our listeners are from New York and it's a shockingly low number, so I feel like a lot of them probably haven't. Um, although I guess people travel, um, but I haven't, I wish I have. I've been, um, I haven't, I can't say I've been to like any big clubs on Fire Island, but I've been to Fire Island. Uh, it's beautiful. Jen, have you been? I've been to Fire Island a bunch and to Cherry, and to Cherry Grove. Okay, cool, cool. That'll just affect the way that I, the way that I talk about it as if I'm the expert of Fire Island. Well, well, let's, what I digress. I, I probably went in my late twenties and early thirties. I haven't been in, let's say, you know, seven to 10 years. Um, So it could be very different from when I was going to Fire Island. Mm -hmm. Aging myself, aging myself here. I have not been to Fire Island, but I, maybe I'm making this up, but I feel like Fire Island has similar vibes to P-Town. That's like Mm -hmm. how I envision Fire Island in my brain. Maybe I'm wrong. I think it's different. It's not because it's not touristy. It's like. Correct. It's actually really like I I totally get why you would think that. But it's actually it's like uh, it's just different. The the vibes are just different. Both bad, I would say. Maybe worse in Fire Island. But anyway, oh, that'll, yeah, okay. I just wanted to know that before I start being like, at, at Fire Island, this is what it's like. But um, please do. I want to, <laughs> I want to know what it realistically is like in comparison. Yeah. Okay. Well, those are like some, maybe some of the positive things. So I'll get to that. But one, okay. I have like two kind of like big conversation starter issues with it, which is that the first thing is like, how much do we think? this was like geared towards straight people and like are we okay with that them like explaining things for straight people like I thought it was kind of that it was really obvious to me when they were explaining the different party drugs that they were doing um like that just felt like a very like picture book of like this is what like gay people do you know what I mean and there were a couple of moments like that and I'm like I don't know I'm not clear on whether I'm mad about it that we're like sort of we have the like explanatory comma on so many things for for straight people. What do you guys think? Yeah, I always think I when I 
consume queer content, particularly on television. Like, I feel like books for me, I it's easier to like read books written by queer people for queer people and like enjoy that. Um, when I'm watching TV shows, I'm always just a little bit skeptical. Um, and same with movies. Uh, I fucking hated The Happiest Season, for example. Um, so I was like skeptical going into this. Um, I did worry that it was going to be geared towards straight people. I felt I could go I could go either way because I felt like it was definitely like throwing stereotypes in my face a lot and like being very explanatory in that way. But I also there were the like the moments of found family and um, I, I felt like comfortable with the characters in a in a way. So I feel like it I could go either way on how much it was for straight people versus queer people. Mm -hmm. That may, Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, you want it to be, like, consumable also. Like, I, I don't know. It's not, like, the worst thing. Yeah, I think that that was maybe one of, one of my, like, biggest concerns, especially, like, going into watching the movie was, like, okay, is this going to be exploitive? Is this, it, what's the target audience for this movie? Is it for straight people to like get a glimpse into what goes on on Fire Island mm -hmm. and like live vicariously <laughs> through the crazy gaze on your TV screen? Um, and I feel like what makes it not entirely that, I think certainly there's a little bit of that. And that's just like Hollywood and capitalism and like how they, what they need to do to probably get this movie funded and greenlit, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it being an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice makes it feel somehow okay to me like it's not it's not just this portrayal of fire island for the straights to consume it is mm -hmm. like also an adaptation of this classic novel and it's like why shouldn't we get an adaptation of pride and prejudice that is just fun and queer and set on fire island like that's such a fun setting for mm -hmm. pride and prejudice to unfold. I totally agree with that. I talk a lot about queering Austin on this podcast and like 50% of why I wanted to do this podcast was because I felt well, I mean, starting out, I had no idea anything about Jane Austen, but after having started to started to read her and like get more like engrossed in the classical literature um fandom online, I think it's important for her works to be made clear because a lot of the people reading her works do see themselves in these stories um like when we were talking in the beginning about which characters we think are canonically queerest like I read Mary Bennett and I'm like yeah that was totally me when I was 16 or however old she is like I think that it's important for those people to like get to see themselves in adaptations of Austin nowadays I think an inherent flaw of like setting it on fire island while really interesting is that it's like gonna be all based around men mm. which like i feel like i guess like not that gay men necessarily need to like be thinking about like in all of their content like be thinking about other people with other gender identities but like it definitely could have been done like i think they would have had to put in effort into like having a storyline like on Cherry Grove. Mm -hmm. But like they could have done that. And I kind of felt like the Margaret Cho character 
was um, like their attempt at being like the movie isn't all men. But I that is my like number one thing that I hated about the movie. Not necessarily that there weren't any women, but like the representation of women was like she existed like to take care of these men and to like give them a home and to like make dinner for them. And that was like her main character traits were like all around that. And then also like the cherry on top on the end, like the only other woman woman we see the entire movie is that lesbian that's like, when are we going to get to Cherry Grove? Like, that was so... <laughs> I can't believe that they kept that in the movie. Like, it's so... Like, I feel like there must have been smart people working on this that know, like, let's not, like, have a stereotype... Just have a lesbian screaming about Cherry Grove at the end. <laughs> You're actually tapping into an actual, like, public controversy that happened over the film. Um I read a couple reviews of the film after I watched it just because I tend to try to like just get the cultural context of whatever we're watching. Um, and there was actually a tweet from Hannah Rosen regarding the film and specifically its failure of the Bechdel test mm. and its use of uh, just one token lesbian character mm -hmm. in the film. And I should note that she did get a, quite a bit of backlash uh, based on that tweet from the perspective of queer men of color who said basically the Bechdel test was created to uh, critique machismo in film and whiteness like the the straight white man film that just excludes women and female characters altogether and that um I think I should just note like I I'm a straight white woman talking about this so I don't feel perfectly equipped to speak about it with all the nuance it deserves um but I think your critique is very valid with the caveat that there's also room for uh, a story centered around AAPI queer men that we haven't necessarily gotten before. Does that make sense? Yeah, I and I, to I totally, I completely agree with you. I just think that the way that it was done, the way that they, there's like one and then that extra lesbian woman, like the the way that the woman in the movie was portrayed, like, that wasn't necessary. Like, everything else could have been the same. And, like, they did that. They had the whole, like, throwaway plot line of that she was kicked off of Cherry Grove because they wanted her to be on. But they didn't dive into that. Like, that wasn't interesting. They didn't make it that funny. Like, it was just because they wanted it all to take place on the on Fire Island, not on Cherry Grove, because otherwise it makes no sense. Why would a lesbian buy a house on Fire Island and not Cherry Grove and then and just have gay male friends that she like invites there and not like I just I literally wrote before I knew that she had been kicked off of Cherry Grove I was like I have to believe that this woman has other friends that are just not there right now and also that the house is on Cherry Grove and they're like not explaining that but obviously it wasn't one thing that like is at least like interesting to know about Fire Island is like the meat rack that they they mentioned which is like not entirely clear it's like that is like to get from fire island to cherry grove you have to like walk through these like dunes and like like greenery and stuff and it's not it's like not a short walk so anyway i think that that was like a part of it that they like wanted everything to be on fire island but i just think they could have done margaret cho way better she could have been a more 
interesting character and had her own like more of her own life like some of the other characters did and I don't think that it had to take away from the stories that they did tell and like the representation that they did have of like queer men of color I will say this was like from a while back but we were talking about um queering Austin and I realized that the two gay pride and prejudices that we've covered have all been about men as the Bennett sisters and I wanted to shout out a book that I read that is a lesbian retelling of Pride and Prejudice where Darcy's a woman and it's called Written in the Stars by Alexandria Belfleur. So it's a book, um, YA. We love YA. Of course, but um, everyone <laughs> should check it out. Cool. <laughs> All right. So I think it might be a good time to turn to things we enjoyed about the movie. Totally. Starting, I guess, with... I said it already, but I really liked the guy who played Charlie. I thought he was really cute. Yeah, he was very sweet. And I feel like I will put this at the top as just a mention. This was like the hottest movie I've ever seen. Everyone was good looking in it. Very. Lots of body, lots of chess, male chess. Chisel, lots of chiseled muscles. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say butts. Lots of butts. I actually was surprised. I thought there would be way more ass in this movie because it was about gay men. And there just, there was I just thought there would be like, like assless bathing suits, so just more, more butt. I there think were a it, couple. Yeah. Yeah, there was one assless underwear. Yeah, but I thought there would be more. I have to say, I mean, I, Sarah, I agree with, I think, some of what you're saying about how Margaret Cho's character could have had more of a backstory, more of a life of her own, been a, a little bit more developed without kind of taking away from the stories of the queer men of color in this film. And yet, I still feel like Margaret Cho stole the show. Maybe that's just because she was the only lesbian character and I am starved for lesbian representation in in film and TV. But I just think I just think she was so good and she had the best one liners of anyone in the she whole did movie. Have really good one liners. Yeah, I think she really um, they obviously uh, not to pull it all the way back to the novel again, but Mrs. Bennett is an iconic mom character. And way over the top, extraordinarily over the top as a character. And uh, I thought Margaret Cho did a good job balancing the Mrs. Bennett of it all with giving it a little bit more heart than Mrs. Bennett sometimes has, because sometimes she's just screeching really loudly through the entire. Yeah, but she cares about her girls and she like ultimately wants what's best for them and wants to marry them off. One of her lines that I really loved was she was like, "Um, our Howie with a doctor, it'll almost be like having health insurance again. That was so Uh Mrs. Bennett. uh I love how she just exclaims when they're walking behind them on the dock and he's like, I'm a doctor and just like perfect comedic timing. She's like, oh, and like covers her mouth. Just, it's like I, in my head, I'm like, how many times did they do that? Because they nailed the timing. Perfect. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was cool to see this like chosen family that is so integral to like queer culture um, as like the Bennett family led by Margaret Cho, the matriarch, even even if some of her character traits were maybe a little like gender stereotypical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, lo- I, I love that idea. It's similar to like the the way that they represented social classes, like taking this family and making it a chosen family, I think is really interesting for sure. At heart, I am a, b- a very big sap. So I lean in really, really hard to the romantic even if it's like really just over the top and cheesy, and it, it, I enjoy that. And I thought this 
just made my romantic heart very happy throughout. Yeah, I want to shout out Joel Kim Booster and the guy who played Will as well, because I actually thought they had some great chemistry. Sometimes there's a little bit of a switched flip when it comes to when Darcy goes from sort of hating Lizzie to loving Lizzie. But what I thought was one of my favorite moments of the entire adaptation was the Alice Munro conversation they had outside the house and the back and forth and the the witty banter about the literature, because first of all, it's a Jane Austen adaptation. So witty repartee is very important and literature is very important. But I thought the actor who played Will did a good job of using that scene to transition from thinking this guy is vapid and shallow to thinking, oh, he's got substance and he's challenging and interesting to talk to, which is the Darcy and Lizzie of it all. So I that was my favorite scene, possibly that one and the scene where Howie and Noah are in the bathroom together and Howie's all upset. Um, and we didn't talk about this, but the the rice queen, quote unquote, the the creepy guy who keeps trying to hit on Howie and Noah um, that's definitely a comp to Mr. Collins in Absolutely. Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. But the scene where Howie is like upset and he basically says, like, stop trying to compare my experience to your experience. Our experiences are different and you know it. I thought that was really powerful. And again, think I think anchored the whole movie in their relationship as opposed to their romances. It's a sister's tale. It's a sister's tale. It's by the sea. And it's by the sea. A few more things about the guy who plays Will, Conrad Rickamora. I will first say that he's currently playing Seymour in Little Shop, um, I think off-Broadway. But uh, I watched a, his Tiny Desk performance yesterday after watching this, and it was just so sweet, and he's so awkward, and he wears these little glasses and just, like, also extremely handsome. He had a few of my favorite moments as well, one being the repeated moment of him just, like, throwing his ice cream cone to the side. Yes. Hilarious. <laughs> that was so funny. I loved that. He's like, it's melting. He, yeah, he just throws it to the side. They were like, oh, Will, I didn't think of you as a tiny ice cream cone kind of dude. And he just like throws it down. <laughs> and then later on when Noah sees him and he he throws it and just starts running away. It's perfection, perfect comedic timing. Also, the moment where Noah comes to find Howie the next morning after the party and they have like an interaction in the kitchen and Noah is like, you don't actually need to pollute the oceans with your water bottles. The tap water is fine. And so uh, Will throws his bottle in the garbage. But then as soon as Noah walks away, he like you see that he's like not actually a tough guy. And he takes it out of the garbage and puts it in the recycling. I thought that that was a really great nod to Darcy's kind of softer side and like his tough exterior actually being a softie. Um, it was really sweet. And a, and a full-blown human disaster, canonically. Oh, absolutely a full-blown. Like, he doesn't know what to do in front of a hot man. And this, he's like, uh, I'm gonna... <laughs> Loved that. I also want to shout the sunset, which was probably the most iconic moment in the movie for me when they're all on the dock and counting down the sunset, but they have to keep extending it. And they're like, 0. 0.9, 0. 0.7, And I just counted wrong, but that's okay. Nobody has to know that. And then afterwards, when Keegan, who for me was my favorite, uh, Keegan and Max were my favorite out of the Bennett sisters. Um, when Keegan is like, you go, girl. You set. Proud of you, girl. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> I was like, yes. So good. I loved Keegan. Keegan was my, for sure, my favorite character. Also, also on the dock when they were like, I, I laughed. So I, I also have a list of funny, like there, there were some funny lines, but like when they were like, 
they, he was like, do you want to go to their hot tub? And then they were all like, hot tub, hot, hot tub. tub. And they were like, Shh. and the people are right there. <laughs> so good. And they're like, be chill, be chill. He's like, yeah, yeah, I guess uh, we, we, we think we could probably make it. <laughs> that shot of all of them kind of silhouetted on the dock, like you saw both groups. And then on the right hand side, you see them all being like, hot tub, hot tub. And you can just see how close they are still standing together. Yeah. It's like such a smart shot like that that was that was definitely a a top moment of mine I thought that the water bottle moment was weird like I get what they were going for but it was so dramatic and it was like it was almost like it was like foreshadowing I mean I guess it was foreshadowing but that's so weird and also there was still water in the water bottle so he was like not even doing a good job so it's like this zoo like quiet zoom in of like him putting a a water bottle into the recycling thing. It was so weird. And I thought that his vibes were really weird in the beginning too when like they were trying to have him be like kind of aloof and off-putting. And and I think that that's because they didn't fully explain why he was skeptical of the of the other people. Like it just seemed like he was like, he he was just like being a dick. Like it was so weird. Like he was just like, hi. And it was sloppy, too, because then the next day he's like, listen, I wanted to apologize for last night. Like, all of a sudden he's in love with Noah. He's, like, being so sweet to him all of a sudden. And Noah's like, you want to apologize for Brayden? And Darcy's like, or Will is like, yes. And then, like, they then they get mad at each other. But, like, what was he apologizing for? Like, when did he change his mind about Noah? That didn't make sense to me. Yeah, no, that was a weird, it was a weird transition from enemies to friends so that was like strangely portrayed to me and also kind of helpful though to keep the movie like not two and a half hours I think there were like these like just stepping stones that were much bigger than others but un- and unseen that just happened to like get us to the end yeah mm-hmm Another favorite moment of mine was Max. So I, so again, Keegan and Max are my two favorite of the the five of them. And when Max gets high and he's in the party and someone says, who is that? And then he looks in the mirror and he goes, who is that? Is that me? I'm gorgeous and starts crying. I just, I lost it. I thought that that moment stole the show for me. His whole performance in that scene. Max was the most relatable character in the entire movie. So relatable when he was like, I don't I think I want to be implicated in this. <laughs> when they're stealing the boat at the end. Like, I get it. Uh, yeah. And he was like, I am fun and smart and worthy. <laughs> when he was high, I was just like, you're, you are, you are all of those things. It was great. I was a little bit worried at first though. Cause then when, when we realized like he was on drugs and then he looked in the mirror in my head, I was like, never look in the mirror. Like, <laughs> you never look in the mirror when you're on drugs, like get away from it. But it turned into a, it turned into an endearing moment, not a scary one. Yeah. Yes. Um, I also want to shout out another scene that I loved, which was um, Darcy dancing. Mm. I thought that was so weird and so fun and so funny. It was weird. Also, a little cameo from Peppermint in that scene. When Peppermint like, was so good. She was just thriving up there. Yeah, she was so natural. I was like, I was, I was all in on Peppermint. That was awesome. Her reaction to the way he spoke was the most organic moment in the entire movie. Totally, I, I've yeah. been to a drag show before where like the drag queen gets someone on stage who's like, um, hi. And they're like, okay. Yeah, totally, totally. And then she was like reacting to people like shouting things in the crowd. And she was like, oh. 
ah, like it was so real. Anyway, yeah, she was a star for sure. Yeah, she looked absolutely gorgeous. And uh, Bowen singing a song to uh, Charlie. Oh, I wanted to say, I think on the Charlie front, I think what they were going for with how into the group he was, was that like, sometimes people who are like born into wealth in a certain way and follow like a very specific path through a professional school don't really get the experience of like coming down to earth and creating found families and learning about themselves in a like stupid 20 something kind of way and I thought what would they were going for with Charlie like being in sort of enamored with their group a little was that like longing for that freedom and that warmth and that community real that friends, he wasn't maybe. getting mm. yeah yeah like I, and I I say this as someone who's like I've been in the messy 20-something world and I've also been in the world of like professional attorneys and their general like like tunnel vision on like their achievements in certain ways it can lead to a really lonely life and I think they were going for the sort of like loneliness of Charlie and I thought for me, another really powerful moment was when Noah confronts Charlie and basically says, you know what? How am I the only person who's ever even asked if Howie, you are good enough for Howie? And then he looks like he's going to cry because he like feels it in his own soul. I thought that was a good moment as well, despite the fact that the uh, <laughs> ex-boyfriend with Lyme disease was there. I feel like the the game scene where they're all playing um heads up also an amazing scene that was so, so good, good. Yeah. that was so funny but I think that scene kind of like drives that point home that like it's not just that there's this like class difference and he's never met like poor people before he's like never met people that have like fun and do family right. game night and like are silly which is also like <laughs> exemplified by will just like not knowing what to do. oh my gosh one of my favorite line deliveries was laura dern we get it you're gay <laughs> their marissa tomei impersonations were on point and i so good i could watch i could re-watch that like you know two and a half minute clip once a day i kid you not the night before we watched this like or two nights before we watched this we watched my cousin Vinny, and my boyfriend had never seen it before and then we went straight from watching my cousin Vinny to this and we did not know marissa tomei would feature so heavily in fire island <laughs> that's amazing the defense is wrong the defense and they did it like six times to the see like is wrong. <laughs> they were almost like competing while simultaneously saying it i thought it was so fantastic and then they split and one went one direction one went imagine you're a deer like it was just it was done really well it was very funny I think that this could be a good transition into our favorite line deliveries we've already done some of them but I mean I wrote down like six um so I can start with one of them it was Luke and he says I don't know why you guys don't think of me as more of a threat I thought that was great and also encapsulates Lydia as really a character. Well. Yeah. Yeah. I want to shout out a really, really, really clever line snuck in and it is a quote. And the reason it is clever is very Jane Austen-y, but um, at a certain point in time when they're getting ready to go to the underwear party, um, Noah's on the floor doing sit-ups and shitting on Darcy and Howie just turns around and goes, ugh, way harsh, Ty. That is a quote from Clueless. Oh, yeah. Which is a contemporary adaptation of Emma, a book by Jane Austen. What? 
and this is a Jane Austen adaptation as well. So I thought it was really fun to pop a little homage to one of the most iconic Jane Austen adaptations into this film in like a cute little like under the radar way because they've referenced they reference like dozens of rom-coms through the movie but just this one little reference to Clueless I was like oh Joel Kim Booster you know you're Jane Austen (laughs) (laughs) okay as I said I have some funny lines written down I can read um so I don't remember who said this but they someone was saying like he thinks Lindsey Graham is um, starred in The Parent Trap. And then then after, like at the end of the scene, someone's like, Lindsey Graham in The Parent Trap. I would watch that. And like, honestly, <laughs> like, yeah, just like the mental image that that creates is so funny. <laughs> so funny. Um, then at, maybe my favorite line in the whole movie was, do you know who Amy Schumer is? <laughs> <laughs> that was my second favorite line. <laughs> I wrote that down too. And then uh, Keegan, my favorite, was like, and they're like, they don't know where Howie is. They're like, I swear, he's like, I swear if something happened to him, we were making a podcast. I know. That's <laughs> like so good. And then this is Margaret Cho. She's she's like referencing uh she's referencing Will and she goes, uh, Charlie's friend, what's his name? Like we? <laughs> she's like, woo? Oh yeah, woo? <laughs> woo? And they're like, Will. <laughs> so good. I liked well. I wrote down a lot of Margaret Cho's lines, but mm-hmm. um, I really liked her girls. I have some terrible news. We're broke, um, which I don't know if that is a moment that happens in Pride and Prejudice, like the girls. I have some terrible news, but it just felt very like Jane Austen and it's like pretty sense and sensibility. Actually. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. But it it just felt like like girls I have some terrible news like one of you must be married off like Mm -hmm. in in this week like I don't know that that just like set the vibe for me um and then I just I just a personal fave of mine was I was an early investor in Quibi yes (laughs) that was hilarious well you guys pretty much took all of mine so I I will go to my favorite nonverbal line which is I'm pretty sure at the end of the movie when Will and Noah were, were kissing to last dance. They were kissing. They kissed on beat. I could have just been like wanting that to happen because it was so romantic. <laughs> but if you rewatch it, I'm pretty sure they're, they're kissing to the beat of music. I'll look up. Look out for that next time. I have a few more favorite line deliveries. So I'll, just, <laughs> I'll keep going. Uh, when Noah drops his phone or rather when Ma- Max bumps into Noah saying, ah, there's a tick. And Dro- Noah drops his phone in the pool. Luke asks Noah if he has Apple Care, and Noah says, "What about me having an iPhone six plus in twenty twenty two? Makes you think I can afford Apple Care." <laughs> <laughs> um, but also Luke saying, or maybe it was Keegan saying, like, "Well, my dad says that if you don't have Apple Care, you only have yourself to blame." <laughs> it's Luke. It's Luke says it. Yes, it's it's funny. I think another Luke line was um, my roommate who I watched this with said that it was improvised, which was, "Can someone trade a Crest white strip for a prep pill?" Um, it happens off screen, so I'm not sure who says it, but apparently it was not scripted. And then uh, my other ones I've already said, which were uh, proud of you, girl, you set, see you tomorrow, girl, at the sun. And then uh, Max looking in the mirror and saying, I'm gorgeous. <laughs> so those are all of mine. Incredible stuff. So if we don't have any more favorite line deliveries, we like to end our episodes by asking who wins the movie. It can be anyone. It can be an actor. It can be a character. It can be a moment. It can be the cinematography, the music, the director, pretty much anything. I'm going to say Keegan 
me too. I just think he did so much with that character. And it was also like, uh, I don't know, it was like so much in a way that was very real to me. Like, I know, I just like, I'm thinking of one person in particular, but like, I just know people like that. And it was also so funny. Like, I've got to give it to Keegan. I completely agree. Keegan, for me, every time I've watched this, has been a standout performance and just like so honestly true to character like kid and and gave Kitty who's kind of a nothing character in the book more to do while still being Luke's slash Lydia's right hand man slash sister he was so good and Max who was phenomenal like reading a book on the way over and just everything about him just those two were standouts to me. I was going to put uh, Keegan and Max for up there for sure. But I think also I'm going to give it to Bo and Yang for his performance of Howie as well. Because I, I really feel like he put a lot of heart into that performance and really like had for me the moments in this the movie that like grounded me, brought me back to earth and also made me like really feel for him. So uh, good on him because he I mean, I think Bo and Yang is generally hilarious, but I think he had a lot of straight man so to speak, role uh, pieces <laughs> of this movie, not in terms of heterosexuality, in terms of comedy. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but I thought he actually performed them with a lot of heart. So, yeah. <laughs> I think I have to say that this might be a cop-out answer, but the casting overall, one for me, particularly in regards to the film's like treatment of race, uh, I feel like it just should be said that like, at least most of the adaptations of like classic literature um, or pieces of media that are set in the like Jane Austen time period are just completely like colorblind casting. And it's like, oh, this is an alternate universe in which race does does not exist Mm -hmm. as a thing. And that just was not the case at all with this film. And I think they like, they just did a really beautiful job of addressing race and and through color conscious casting uh and making it a relevant plot point i was gonna say some specific writing to to really make race a a part of the story Mm -hmm. for me it was keegan and will uh keegan because just totally fabulous and beautiful you know acting um and will because i feel like i kind of as much as a lesbian could uh, I kind of like was smitten with him. You know, I went through a character development in, in my appreciation and love for him in the flick. And he just, I don't know. At the end, I was kind of like, I really like him a lot. Yeah. He was pretty dreamy. And they had some real chemistry. Totally. And he was sweet. He had his sweet moments where I was like, oh, he's just a disaster. But like, uh, yeah, I wish that he had been more developed. And I think that uh, Conrad Rickamora did a really good job with the character. Totally. Agreed. All right. That concludes this episode's discussion of Fire Island. Uh, thank you so much, the cruising podcast in general. Do you want to tell the people where they can find you? You can find our podcast at cruisingpod.com and at cruisingpod on social media. Uh, and the podcast is streaming wherever you get your podcasts. So you should follow Cruising Podcast and listen. Yeah, those are all the big ones. Amazing. Well, thank you again for coming. Thanks for having us. This was a blast. Thank you so much for having us. This was so much fun. Yay. So until next time, stay proper. 
and oh, 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 and go watch a sunset. Potted Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.